Now we are recording. <laughs> exciting. Super exciting. All right, so intro playing, blah, blah, blah. Boom! Welcome to the podcast named So Space. So let's just get introductions and uh, the purpose of the podcast out of the way so we can jump into the talking stuff because uh, that's where all the meat Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yes. So, purpose of the podcast. Oh, no, no. Should we do introductions first? Let's do introductions. Dad, maybe? Okay, I'm going to introduce you. All right. Okay, then. Okay, and then you can introduce me. I'll see how you know. Or, like, what stands out in your mind of who I am as a person. All right, so, Dad, Charles Roger Elcock. Or, I just won't say the R part. I like it, though. I don't, I'm not, I'm not fond of my middle name now. I think it fits though. Okay, Charles Elcock, you are the top dog of astronomy right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm glad you're kidding. Well, I think you you know you've made a name for yourself. Anyway, so you are the director, the current director of the Center for Astrophysics of the Harvard and Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. That's correct. And you've been. How long has it been? You, I said 15 years, but then you said 16 years, right? Indeed. In fact, it's coming up on 17 soon. Mm-hmm. So you went to Auckland University in New Zealand. That's primarily where you grew up. Indeed. Yes. That's and then correct, also. You were born in England, but you moved around growing up a lot. My dad was in the army, so we moved a lot. Okay, so yes. College in New Zealand. Then you moved to... The U.S., California, Caltech, yes. to pursue a graduate program in astronomy. That's correct. And just through your hard work and determination, you somehow, blah, 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 made it to be the director. Indeed. <laughs> Was there anything else I'm missing? No, those are the middle parts of my career, but you got the essence part. Uh, Auckland University was a great place to be a college student. Caltech was a wonderful place to be a graduate student. And now I have... What I think is the most interesting job in the world. But yes, you're retiring. I am. I think it's time for you to step down and chill out a little bit. I, I like the concept of chilling out. I haven't done much of that for a while. And also it's time for somebody else to take the rein. We'll see how it goes. All right, and then introductions of me, Dad. Well, you are Chloe Alcock. Yeah. Uh-huh. Chloe Chu Alcock. Uh-huh. Your mom is Chinese. Uh-huh. And I'm Caucasian, as we can tell. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You were born in Berkeley, California. Okay, detailed, yes. A very important detail. And you had a, we had a really wonderful start in California. You went to a, a great preschool called Aquatic Park, where you met a, one of your longtime friends, Tara. Yeah, sure. And then when you were, I think, five years old, we moved to Philadelphia, which you charmingly called Philadelphia back then. Oh, yeah, okay. And that's where you started school. You went through kindergarten and first grade in a really wonderful friend's school there. And honestly, we thought we were there for the rest of our careers, your mother and I. Oh, okay. But at that 
at that age, it started emerging that you had a really strong artistic bent. Mm. Anytime you were quietly in a corner somewhere, we could find you with a with a pad or just a single piece of paper and some crayons or a pencil. You were drawing, sketching mm. constantly every time you had a, had a spare moment. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to the Boston area where we moved to Lexington, Massachusetts. And you entered the school system here. And your artistic bent just developed beautifully. Oh, thank you. And it was, it was it's, oh, honestly, it was just really been wonderful for, for both your mother and for me to, to, to see all the artwork that you've done over the years. Mm-hmm. And also, it's just wonderful to have an artist in the family. I'm an astronomer, your mom's an engineer. You have a younger brother who is also now a mathematician. So you just rounded us out. And so you went through the school system in, in Lexington and did a lot of extra astounding things. And then you went to the California College of Arts. Mm-hmm. What did I major in? What did you major in? Yeah. <gasps> Dad. Oh, my God. <gasps> Dad. <laughs> Drawing. What did I major in? Drawing. No. No. What did you major in? Oh, my God. Animation. Animation. Oh, of course. Yes. Wow, Dad. Yes. Yeah. That was, that was a... That was a blunder. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. Now, okay. I graduated from college. So mm-hmm. here we are. And three years out, I'm freelancing, doing production, most recently an indie development game. So that's been fun. All right. Introductions. It's done. Okay. Yeah. Boom. Okay. We have done it. Completed. Yes. Now, what is this podcast? Why? What do, what do I think it's going to be? Do you think people... Dad, do you think people will learn stuff from this podcast? Some people will learn some things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, I just want to chit-chat about space stuff because it's so cool. And I don't want to sit down and go like, oh, 101, astronomy, this is that, that's that. I just kind of want to have a conversational flow of like different topics of let's chat about the moon. These are questions that I like have always been on my mind. Mm-hmm. So astronomy, I think... Yeah, it can be intimidating to ask because it's like, oh my god, they know so much more than me. Like, I can't ask them, like, in fear of looking stupid or feeling stupid or they look down on me. But ask the questions. That's what this thing is for. I'm the bridge for the questions. Dad, you got all the answers. I'm not intimidated by you. If anything, you're very, like, you're great. You're a great dad. I love you. I love you too. Anyway, so yeah, asking questions. And then, yeah, I wanted to, uh, since COVID, it's been very sad. I haven't seen you in a long time, except, no, how long has it been since I saw you? 18 months for the whole COVID span? Well, 18 months, but you did come and visit for a couple of weeks. I just did. Just very recently. I did. And that was wonderful. It was very nice. And you turned uh, the big 7070. I did indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, reading your uh, friend's note cards, they were pretty funny. <laughs> the one who was like, well, there's nothing to live for past 30. I was like, what the heck? Yes, indeed, yes. Very funny. But yeah, it was nice to see you. So anyways, yeah, you don't call me. That's a thing. So I wanted to chat with you more. Yes. Yes. So those are the reasons for the podcast. Yeah. So in terms of formatting, because there's so many things to talk about space, we are going to start on Earth for the next episode. For this episode, we'll just chit chat about whatever. Yes, indeed. So we're gonna, yes, we'll start on Earth and then we'll kind of expand outwards of like, oh, the Earth, then the tides, then the moon, then the sun, ooh, and then what's past that, all that kind of jazz. Sounds good to me. And then, because I really want this to be kind of a 
engaging activity for people. Or mainly I want people to engage. I want questions. I want the questions. So I want listeners, any listeners, if you have any questions that it's like burning on your mind, you're just like, oh, I've always wanted to know this. And like, I don't really know too many space people who can accurately answer this and like going on the web, it's like a lot. So you send those questions in, I will try to answer them. And then dad, you'll be the one to correctly answer it. Okay, I'll do my best. Yes. Keep in mind, I don't know everything. I know. In fact, I, most things I don't know. But we can always make headway and we can always look things up and come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess on that note, how did you get into astronomy? Well, that's interesting because I was actually a late bloomer in, to astronomy. at the In college at the University of Auckland, I was a major in, in physics and math. And I actually really enjoyed both physics and math. I'd enjoyed them all through high school. But I was having a bit of a crisis at the beginning of my senior year. I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I knew I wanted to go either to Britain or the US for grad school. But I couldn't really picture myself doing a graduate program in physics. It didn't, it didn't seem right to me somehow. And then one day, just by chance, I picked up a book which described the early discovery of what we call radio pulsars. These are sources of radio radiation, not very bright, that put out their radiation in pulses. In the first few, they were all like every four seconds, they just be like, tsh, tsh, you know, make a little bit of noise every four seconds. And they were discovered in Cambridge, England, by a graduate student whose name was Jocelyn Bell. And she was a woman in the physical sciences at a time when there were very few women and they weren't really very welcome. And she was looking for something completely different. Um, She was doing the job that she had been recruited to do. And she just noticed this strange little signal that was repeating itself. And so she paid attention. And data gathering back then, this was in the 1960s, was very primitive. It was ink pens on graph paper, making little wiggly lines. So she had to scan hundreds of feet of graph paper to find these these objects. Oh, my God. But she discovered something that turned out to be what we call neutron stars. These are stars that weigh a little bit more than the sun, maybe 40% more than the sun, but are only about as big as a city. They're incredibly dense, and they're made up of what we call neutron matter or neutronium sometimes. And they're rotating, and it's like a rotating searchlight beam. You know, if you look at a, a, a searchlight, every now and then it flashes. What it's really doing is that the beam is rotating, and when it points in your direction, you see a flash. Well, these are like giant searchlights in the radio sending out their, their beams across the galaxy, the Milky Way. So she made this astonishing discovery as a student. Wait, question. With the, the signal, like a lighthouse, mm-hmm. is there a hole in the star? That is why it's specifically directional? Like, why isn't it just like a big, me, I'm the star, sending out my signals in all direction? That's actually a very insightful question you're asking. And um, it, even today, it's not fully understood how the searchlight beam gets made. Oh. But we've, we've got good reason to believe it's because this, this star has a magnetic field, mm. a little bit like a bar, bar magnet, and like the Earth also has a magnetic field. And we think that electrons are accelerated along the, the magnetic field lines. And as they come out, as a kind of little spray of electrons, they produce this, this searchlight beam. And then as the star rotates, the beam rotates with it, and every now and then it points in our direction. Oh. And that takes four seconds? Like, that star's going fast, right? Well, that star is really rotating very quickly. But actually, since then, we've discovered some pulsars that are going around hundreds of times per second. 
Just imagine this, an entire star that weighs more than the sun turning around hundreds of times per second. That's crazy. Yeah. All right, so you read the book, you're inspired. Why did it grab your attention, though? Well, it, it, would, it was just a remarkable mixture of what she was doing day to day was sort of mundane. You know, she was stringing electrical wires out in a field to make this gigantic antenna. And then she was spending hundreds of hours looking at gra uh, graphs of wiggly lines that were mostly rather boring. But she paid attention and she noticed this very unusual thing and she stuck with it. And she and it turned out to be this remarkable discovery. And just the thought that one person, you know, and she was embedded in a research group, so she wasn't working on her own. But she, this was her initiative could do something so remarkable. Just really just totally blew me away. Goodness. Well, that's pretty cool. So you thought oh, I can go into this like astronomy world and make a difference? Or you're just excited about like the discoveries? I was excited about the subject, about the possibility of discovery. Um, the, the, I started reading more because uh, I knew almost nothing about astronomy at the time. But after this book, I, I just got every other book I could find. And everything I read seemed to be interesting. So I applied to graduate school and I got into Caltech. And I thought, well, that's, I'll just see what this is like. I'd never been in the United States before. Wow, that's a big move. But in terms of like going to graduate school for astronomy, were there a lot of people who kind of were interested in what? Okay, let me preface this. So in animation, right, there's like a specific time where it's like the nine old men or something where they were they were the ones who made the animation rules because they were just new. And like all my teachers that are older were like animation like it wasn't a job that didn't exist before like there's no school for it mm -hmm. but now compared to me i majored in animation it's like there's jobs there's a bunch i can teach you about it because there's history mm -hmm. is that so how new was astronomy at that point when you started to get into it well that's a bit of a complicated question because astronomy is a very old discipline um, as far back as we've got records, people have been recording things that went in the sky. We know from petroglyphs that all ancient peoples would observe comets from time to time, and we can see images of comets. We know from petroglyphs that people recorded the positions of stars. So before there was writing, you know, writing down of words, people were, were recording in their own way things in the sky. So astronomy goes back thousands of years. Okay. And... We know from the time, the earliest times when there was extensive writing and people were starting to accumulate libraries, that people paid a lot of attention to the sky. They noticed that most stars had the same relative positions every night, and that's how they, they came up with constellations. They noticed that there was this band that they call the Milky Way or similar names in different, different languages. And the ancient civilizations recorded a great deal of stuff, ranging from the, the, the ancient Chinese, the ancient Egyptians. The moving into the Middle Ages, the Arabs took took a, a large role, and then then Europe in the uh, more more recent few hundred years, and then the Americas. But what would they use it for? Like, are they is that calendar stuff? Is that navigation stuff? Um, interesting. It's a very interesting question. A good deal of astronomy is not actually very useful. It's just oh. very interesting, and people were trying to make sense of what they saw. Okay. But in fact, the first people who used astronomy in a way that made a big difference was, as you said, navigation. And we know of a lot of primitive cultures that learned how to navigate the open ocean using the positions of stars and the positions during the daytime of the sun. And this was very important because the early, early 
people would go to ship, they would always sail close to the shore so they could see Uh-oh. the nearest land because it just the notion of venturing out into the open ocean was just terrifying. But when they when they learned their how to navigate with stars, some intrepid, really gutsy individuals uh, went out in, in boats and went out into the open ocean. And they it was done in uh, on a number of different occasions. For instance, the Vikings across the North Atlantic found Iceland and then they found Greenland. And then some of them even went on to find uh, North America. They, were, they had to go out over open ocean with no, no land in sight. But the most dramatic of the primitive navigators were the Polynesians. Yes. Wait. And because we talked about this lap, the last episode, mm-hmm. I want to point out the cool things I thought. Just to repeat it back, because maybe I did learn something in our conversation. So the Polynesians, they went across the Pacific Ocean. Yes. Pacific Ocean. And that is the biggest ocean in the world. It covers half, almost half of the world. Almost, almost half the globe, yes. Oh, how creepy. I mean, just, yeah. I think that would freak me out a little. Like, going out to the sea and just seeing nothing. And it's like, which way? Anyways, so they use the stars to navigate. And something about they traveled in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. So the constellations were different. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. It's a very good insight. They're the only early explorers who went into both the north and the south. Mm-hmm. So they they found Hawaii, they found Tahiti, they found New Zealand. Oh, that's cool. And they settled all of these lands. They've, the most extreme place they found is Easter Island. It's just this tiny little island in the eastern South Pacific um, off the coast of Chile. Did they make the statues? Did they make the statues? They made those gigantic statues, yes. Interesting. Well. Yeah. And then, interestingly enough, at some point they they lost interest in navigating and when uh, Captain Cook started exploring the Pacific in the 1700s, there the, the were Polynesians, they were all descendants of navigators, but they had lost the art for some reason. They, they just decided that they had, they liked living in New Zealand or they liked living in Tahiti or they liked living in Hawaii. And they would just stay there for a while. Yeah, it's nice and tropical, it's warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of technology, were they just looking at it and just saying like, oh, that star and that star are closer. And it's like, which one? It's like, follow my lead. Like, look at my hand. Look at where I'm pointing. How do they do? Yeah, you're nodding. Okay, that's pretty crazy. As best we can tell, that's how they did it because they didn't have writing. Uh, We found no records that looked like written records. So it was all by experienced people passing on their knowledge to less experienced people. And honestly... Navigating the Pacific is, is, is dangerous. There are storms, gigantic waves, huge winds come up. Probably a lot of them didn't make it, but they just kept trying and persisting and they would make these, these extraordinary voyages. Oh my gosh. So when, when did, so there's kind of like ancient astronomy. I don't want to say ancient because that makes it sound like it's the ancient aliens, but like older, <laughs> pre, not prehistoric, older pre-technology astronomy and then when did like the more telescope all right dad i'm gonna just say it so we talked about this last last episode or last take right so i'm just trying to like there were so many cool things we talked about because i was like that's dope so i'm trying to reinsert them in but it's like oh i already know what we're talking about but i just want to say it again Mm -hmm. to share it so anyways what was i gonna say i've lost it the train of thought 
Telescopes. Telescopes. Giovanni? That's not the right name. No. But close. Began Galileo. with Galileo. That's it. You got it. Who's Giovanni? What, are, what is that? Uh, well, I have a, a scientific colleague who's Giovanni at the Center for Astrophysics, but I don't think that's who you have in mind. I don't think that's right. No, you, you, were, think, you were thinking of Galileo. Yeah. So he made the telescope, right? And is, so is that kind of around when modern technology for astronomy kind of came into the play? That was a game changer for astronomy that astronomy never went back for because it's possible to see fainter objects. It's also possible to see objects that are much smaller on the sky that are close to each other. You couldn't see separately. It's possible to see not very bright things next to very bright things like the moons of Jupiter. Ooh. Galileo made extraordinary discoveries with his first telescope. So that was the beginning of all of astronomy as we know it, because everything we do today depends upon telescopes. Yeah, I really also kind of liked learning about that era or that around his time, because it was very like... I like philosophy in the sense of like, oh, the human connection and whatever. Mm -hmm. So it was like, at that point, they thought that Earth was the center of the universe. Everything revolved around them. That's a very, I don't want to say pompous, but very like, oh, aha, I'm the individual. I'm the one around the center, right? Yeah, yes, indeed. But then he discovered that the sun was... I, did they know about planetary systems or like the Milky Way and like, no, probably not. No, they didn't. Now, Galileo was not the first person to think that. Oh. Uh, before him came uh, Copernicus, who was a, a religious figure in Poland. And uh, he realized that the Earth goes around the sun and the other planets goes around the sun. And he was quite reluctant to publish his, his analysis because he knew it would be very unpopular with the, with the church at the time. And he was a member of the church. So he, he wrote everything up and he had a, an acolyte, a, a younger priest, and it was mostly published after he died. So, yeah, so that was his way of de dealing with it. And so word got around uh, among the more educated people and almost everybody who was educated and interested in, um, in, interested in any form of science was connected to the church in some way. A, a very large fraction of them were priests, actually. Uh -huh. so, which Copernicus was. So what Galileo did, Galileo really started putting astronomy on a more modern footing. And he just said, you know, Copernicus was right. And he said it publicly. He said it in front of the church. They told him to stop saying it. He said, well, I'll stop saying it. But nevertheless, it's true. <laughs> so. I, well, there was also another thing that I thought was funny or that, what was it, the church at the time or... Yeah, or whatever. They they thought that all like celestial objects in the sky were completely smooth because that's like, that's how it is. That's how it was created. But mm -hmm. every time I look at the moon, I feel like you could just see like shadows on it, right? Mm -hmm. So were they just kind of like, oh no, there's like it's pattern, but it's all smooth, or like they didn't have glasses at that time? Uh, I don't know why they had the idea they did, but they thought the moon was smooth. And one of the one of the earliest discoveries that Galileo made was that there were actual craters on the moon, and that the sunlight cast shadows with the ri the rim of the craters had the were like circular mountains, mm -hmm. and that there were shadows in the craters, and that was very unpopular. So Galileo, because we looked this up last time, he was around 1605 ish. He is alive at 1605. He was born in the 1500s, and he died in the mid. 1600s yes. did you look this up too because before you didn't know yes i did okay yeah that's right yes so then modern telescopes galileo very important and then the next thing that you talked about which was if not more important was photography 
photography was another game changer. And that came about in the late 1900s. I thought it was 1800s. The late 1800s, excuse me. Okay, yeah. I was like, whoa, that's recent. Yeah, ni- 1900s, no, definitely late, late 1800s. Yeah. And actually, a lot of that was done um, in the United States. A lot of the early work was done actually at Harvard, at the Harvard College Observatory. How old is Harvard? Oh, Harvard is uh, more than 375 years old. Yeesh. Yes. Is that so. just what it takes to be a good college? You just got to be really old? Well, it's the oldest college in the United States. Oh, my God. Okay, so is that older than the United States? How old is the United States? Well, the, the United States is much younger than that. The Harvard was, uh, the United States is uh, only 200 and some years old. Bro, what the heck? Okay. Yes. Okay, that's weird. Um, well, no, there was a lot going on in the United States before before it became the United States. Yeah, I guess that's true. Huh. Mm-hmm. Is that why Harvard kind of looks like Harry Potter a little bit? Because it's old. I have no answer to that question. Okay, we'll skip that one. So, yeah, I didn't know Harvard was kind of like the one pushing it. Is Harvard the place for astronomy? Because it essentially started recording stuff there? Harvard is where systematic use of photography really came about. Um, so a, a number of people tried coupling um, telescopes with what were called daguerreotypes, the very early photographic media. You see these primitive photographs. And uh, people at Harvard started doing that. And then there was this technology called wet plates where there were glass plates and they had to be in liquid solutions. They were very difficult to handle because you're dealing with these poisonous liquids. And then um, later in the 1800s, what are called dry plates were invented where you could get a specially prepared glass plate. It had this uh, silver nitrite uh, nitrate emulsion on, on the surface. You would unpack it from the envelope on the back of the telescope and expose it against the sky and put it back in the envelope and you would process it with chemicals later on and have a record of the, of the, of the sky that night. And Harvard became very systematic about that and started establishing telescopes in other locations, in Peru also and in South, uh, South Africa, and started taking photographic plates of both the northern and the hemisphere northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere just to cover as much of the sky as possible and we have over 500,000 of these plates still at the observatory wasn't there something was there something where it's like there was an accident and it burned ah not nearly as catastrophic as you said but there was a there was a a bad incident a few years ago where there was actually a flood oh no Uh, an eight inch water main into the building broke and about 60,000 of these plates were underwater. Oh, no. And we thought, oh, my God, they're totally ruined. But interestingly enough, Harvard has a lot of interest in preserving old things, including old photographs. So we got a lot of help very quickly. And it was February. There was snow on the ground. The first thing they said is that you've got to get these out of the water and into a cold place. Why don't we just put them outside on the, on the, on the lawn? Oh, wow. So we got a bunch of volunteers and uh, opened up one of the windows and put these glass plates very carefully into cardboard uh, boxes. And they were lined up on the, on, the, on, on the road and the grass outside. Wait, what? It was, it was very cold. It was like putting them in the fridge. Were you director when this happened? I was director when this happened, yes. Oh, my gosh, Dad. Wait, how come you never told me about that? That's such a weird, like, but it worked, I guess, right? Yeah. Well, the, over 60,000 plates were, were handled that way. And then within a couple of days, the, the professionals found an organization that could clean them. And they were moved to a gigantic refrigerated warehouse. And they were cleaned. And honestly, they were almost not damaged at all. Wow. It was just one of the most amazing saves I've ever seen. Wait, how big are these glass plates? Because I'm thinking like a, like a solid like brick or something. Like yeah, how... about that big, yes. This, like an iPad big? Well, they could, 
they can be bigger than an iPad. Some of them are as, as, as big as uh, 14 inches by 14 inches. Wow. They come in a range of sizes. Uh -huh. And uh, it's very interesting because a lot of the analysis of these plays was carried out by, by women who were hired by the director at the time. He hired women originally because they were paid less. Ew. And so he could have more people working for him by paying women. Yeah. But some of these women turned out to be really important figures in the history of science. And they made very important discoveries. Oh, very cool. Which to this date are celebrated, right? And to his credit, he didn't try and steal their, their, their work. He let them publish under their own name and they got credit for what they did. Oh, wow. What a nice guy. <laughs> what, um... What was I going to say? If you, okay, if you were to, like, hold up one of these glass plates, are they similar to, like, a negative of a photo where you see, like, the opposite, or? Yes, they they, they look like negatives, so uh, the sky is just actually clear, you can see through the glass, and the stars are like little dark spots. Yeah, so phot photography completely changed astronomy. That's an important, uh, important uh, thing to keep, and it... It, it stayed the dominant technology until the introduction of modern electronics. So the sort of chips that transform modern um, entertainment and communications also transformed astronomy forever. So now our images are born, di uh, born digital. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So and then telescopes are just getting better and better. And that's kind of what is that the only way astronomers are recording things like you need a telescope to look at mm -hmm. stuff. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll have an entire episode dedicated to that because uh, there's a lot of different telescopes out there. That's pretty cool. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. All right. So moving on to the next stuff, the midsection, if you will. Mm -hmm. So space is an infinite place. How much is left to be discovered in space or astronomy? Almost everything. Word. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean by that? We, we have seen a tiny fraction of the universe. We are one planet orbiting one star, which is a perfectly ordinary star, in a galaxy that we call the Milky Way. There are many billions of stars like the Sun in the Milky Way, and there are million, many billions of galaxies like the Milky Way. So we are not unusual. There's a tremendous amount of space out there. And everywhere we look, every time we have new, a new capacity to look in some new way, we find something unexpected. So what we've learned is to expect that there's going to be something to find that we've never thought of before. Okay, well, or the reason why I asked that is because, so yeah, we live on Earth. Can't we say that, like, oh, we know the properties of how gravity works or how blah, blah, blah works? Can't we just assume that it'll work kind of like this because there's no other way? Are there other weird ways in which, like, things can interact that we've just never seen before? Well, that's a very interesting question you're asking. Um, we think that the laws of physics, the basic laws of physics of gravity, radiation, electricity and magnetism, nuclear physics, we think they're what we call universal laws, that they apply everywhere. And as best as we can tell, that's true. So when we can detect a physical process at some great distance astro astronomically, it seems to obey, obey the same equations that we find here in the lab on Earth. So a good deal of what's going out on out there, you're absolutely right, is controlled by the same basic physical processes and the same mathematical equations as we are familiar with here on Earth. Mm -hmm. But what we find is that those equations, which are actually relatively simple, and not many of them, allow an enormous range of possibilities. So they allow all of chemistry, they allow biochemistry, 
they allow geology. These are all, con all controlled by the same basic underlying physical processes. And there's just enormous numbers of ways things can be put together. So I think we, we probably got a pretty good idea what, the, what most of the physical laws look like. There's always room for surprise. And dark energy was the great surprise of the end of the last century. But we'll, we'll, we'll find planets that behave in ways that we never anticipated. We'll find life forms that do not resemble anything we ever thought of. There's, there's a lot to be discovered. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, when I was asking you kind of like what questions are left, like what are the three big ones that kind of astronomy is would like to see progress is there's dark matter, mm -hmm. there's dark energy, mm -hmm. and then there's seeing if life is elsewhere mm -hmm. so to go through them one by one dark matter are like little invisible particles that are neutrino no neutrino not quite what is it what are they called nutrii no 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 they're particles that we don't actually we, we give them a lot of different names um, because we haven't actually found one yet we think they're massive particles that weigh as much as a large atom but they only interact like a neutrino okay because neutrinos, we know a lot about, and they can pass through us, and they pass through us constantly. So the dark matter particles, we think, this is just a hypothesis, we think that they're passing through you and me continuously, and we don't know they're there. Is it like a, a stream of like, oh, there's like thousands of them, and we don't even know, or is it just like, one kind of passed through you? Ah, that's it. Oh, very large numbers. Oh, Okay. Constantly, every every second. Would that not do some damage to us or something? Well, it's interesting because when I say they're like neutrinos, neutrinos almost completely pass through normal matter, but every now and then one of them will interact with one atom and make a little a little disturbance, maybe a little bit of sound, maybe a little bit of light. And we think it's the same with these dark matter particles. Keep in mind, we have never actually found one of these dark matter particles, so I'm speaking very speculatively here. And so... There are individual, every now and then one of them will strike one of the atoms in your head or your leg or some part of your body Ooh. and knock one atom a little to one side. But, you know, it's just one atom. It's okay. The body's, body can take that. That's not, no problem. So it's, it's not doing you any harm and you're not noticing it. People build very sensitive equipment looking for these little little events. Yeah, that, that kind of weirded me out. Like the fact that it's like, oh, it could pass through you, but it's like invisible, but... Kind of not there, but kind of there. Anyways, oh no, the reason why they're cool, right, is because of the gravity they pull or produce. And that was, uh, okay, explain it. Explain why the gravity part was cool. Well, what we notice actually is that if we, for instance, take our, our own galaxy, the Milky Way, it's this beautiful structure. It's disc-like, you know, the stars are mostly in a plane and it's rotating, rotating rather quickly. We're moving it around over well over 200 kilometers per second around the center of the Milky Way. Wait, so in small brain terms, is that like I, me, a little human, I run all the way to the moon in like two seconds? Uh, no, it would take you a little longer than that. No, it's, it's well, so now it's say 250 kilometers per second. So it's a, on the order of 200 miles per second. So it's like getting from here to California in 15 seconds or less. So Lexington, Boston to California. Yeah, oh, that's right. I'm in Lexington, right? Yes. So we're moving pretty quickly. And we're, we, we must be held, you know, the galaxy's not flying apart. It's, it's been going around in circles for a long time. So that's held together by gravity. 
and we just can't see enough material in stars and gas to account for the gravity. In fact, that only accounts for maybe 10%. Oh. So there's this other 90%, which is invisible to us, and that's what the dark matter is. The dark matter was originally hypothesized to account for this missing gravitating mass. Would it be something like, I am me, and then I jump into a ball pit that's full of invisible balls? Is that similar to dark matter? Well, similar in the sense that if you jumped into a pit of balls, you'd probably feel the balls. They would jostle you. The dark matter, we only feel it through its gravity. Um, but they're so small and they're everywhere. So the gravity kind of cancels out? No, gravity never cancels out. That's one of the features of gravity. It just keeps adding. So you put in more material, you get a stronger gravitational field. Okay, so in terms of like, I'm in the Milky Way mm -hmm. and there's dark matter around. If I go outside of the Milky Way and I'm not in any kind of galaxy or uh, whatever kind of spiral, will there be more or less dark matter? Well, fundamentally, we don't actually know, but we think the density of dark matter in the Milky Way is higher compared to most places in the, Mil in the, in the universe. Mm. Uh, we've actually got good theoretical reasons to believe that. But um, Okay. We could talk about it more in another time. Yes. But very interesting stuff. And then... The other one, which I think they should name, they should change the name of something, mm -hmm. but dark energy. That's, they're not even related to each other. They don't, don't think they're related, no. Yeah, but they're called dark because you just can't see it. That's right. Okay, so I remember dark matter to an extent, but dark energy is moving further away from each other, that kind of thing. What is it? Well, the universe is expanding. That's one of the most remarkable discoveries in astronomy in the 20th century. And for the longest time, as we studied the expansion, we expected that eventually we'd find that it was slowing down because the gravitational attraction between all the galaxies slowly reduces the velocity with which they're moving with respect to each other. But in fact, when the measurements were finally made, it turned out that the rate is ex accelerating. In fact, the universe is expanding faster now than it did when it was half as old. And that was a huge surprise because it was inconsistent with any of our understanding of modern physics. Um, and so we call Whatever force is producing that acceleration, we call it dark energy. Uh, we don't know what it is. We have practically no understanding of it at all. But it appears to be that on the very largest size scales for the whole universe, it's the most important force there is. But that's not gravity? It might be related to gravity in some strange way, but gravity only slows things down you know, when they're moving apart. And this is causing things to speed up as they move apart. So is dark energy related to any kind of physical property well like with the dark matter or something it's like it, it's something like there's something that makes something else do something but with the dark energy it's like an action that's not attached to anything specifically it's just something that's happening so how how is something producing energy that isn't there that doesn't have anything to produce <laughs> Well, you sound like some of the theoretical physicist friends I have. Uh, the truth is, there's a lot of there are a lot of very intelligent people trying to figure this out, um, and I think the fair answer is that there's a lot more work to be done. Mostly, people think that the dark energy is somehow attached to the vacuum; that it's a property of the vacuum. 
but how that comes about I can't really explain to you I, I'm not really familiar with the with the models myself it's okay I don't think my brain would be able to comprehend even if you were it's such a big topic oh yeah like time space property I remember you were telling me something about the fourth dimension like there's the first second third and then fourth and it's time mm-hmm. yes did you say there was a fifth or six uh, I may have said that we know of four dimensions, three in space and one in time. But there are some theoretical physics uh, models which have extra dimensions, up to 10 or even more than 20, Bro. sometimes 26 dimensions. What else is there? <laughs> Wait, do you know what? Okay, okay. so the first one is a plane, right? Or a point. It's a point. No, no. A dimension, you need a line. Okay. That has no volume. The second one. Wait, Dad, are you playing with your microphone a little bit? Not me. Are you moving it? I was playing with my pen. All right. Well, make sure it's not close to whatever. Okay. Anyways, okay. I just want to make sure this one works. I don't want to retake this one because the questions are so cool and it, like I don't want to like have to respur my like the kind of like spontaneity of like oh what does that mean what is this you're being you're being just fine sweetheart and it's we're 50 minutes and it's according to me I'm still recording. Okay. Alrighty. So the dot is a dot. No, a line. And then two is a plane. Mm-hmm. Three is a cube. And then I don't know where I don't know where four comes in. What is that? Two cubes at different times? What does that mean? <laughs> the fourth one is not a space dimension. You basically say that time is like the fourth dimension. Okay. But what Einstein demonstrated with his mathematics is that you could mix the spatial dimensions and the time dimensions in strong gravitational fields. Oh no, okay. Yeah, I know, it's as, it's as, uh, Brain. It's as, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot to accept when he f- published his original paper in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Okay, so time is like, my brain's almost like letting go of that. So what's five, 10 and 23 dimensions? What is that like taste smell no 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 <laughs> they they only have they only make sense if you do the math oh i see so yeah okay all right i'm not gonna answer in the math so that's okay we'll we'll go on yeah so then the third question mm-hmm. which is almost mm-hmm. perhaps the most intriguing perhaps is life elsewhere indeed yes aliens dad do you think they're real I think there's life elsewhere in the universe. Do you think aliens have visited us? And us meaning Earth? I don't know. There's no, I've seen no evidence that they have, but I don't know. But you're not saying no. Oh, I'm absolutely not saying no either. <gasps> Dad. All right, well, we gotta watch that, that Netflix series with the... Who's the guy? Bob Lazar? That guy? Uh, I, Did you see that? No, I haven't seen it. Well, we gotta watch it because... Yeah, Robbie and I watched it and we're both like, oh my god, you gotta ask your dad, meaning you, so we'll watch it at some point. Mm, okay, Yes. sure. Uh, so the other thing is, do you think life will be, what do you think it's going to look like if we find it? Or um, Truth is, we don't know, um, but just to give you some idea because of, the, of the steps, is that we're finding planets around other stars, we're finding some planets that look kind of like the Earth, you know, about the same size, appear to be rocky. And some of those are at about the right distance from their star, so they have a nice temperature on the surface, so you can have liquid water. And if they're old enough, keep in mind our, our Earth is over 4 billion years old, 
sooner or later it would seem like the chemistry the kind of series of chemical re uh, reactions that produce life on earth would produce something like life elsewhere it would start out very basic you know start out with very simple structures uh, single cell creatures mm -hmm. and then gradually build more and more complicated structures and you would end up with something that didn't look like us but was sophisticated uh, dead. That'd be... okay wait, wait wait first... question, question 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 okay no you could i'll hold my question what were you gonna say the first well the first thing that we'll look for the sign of life is the f the biggest change that life has made to our planet is to its atmosphere mm. is make oxygen because the oxygen in our atmosphere that we breathe every day was produced by life and before there was life on earth there was no oxygen in the atmosphere so we will look for oxygen in the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars as a first step and when we find it we won't be completely convinced there's life there but we'll say there's a very good chance there's life there and we'll make more measurements and gradually focus in on that okay okay so the question i was gonna ask is you know that like comparison of like here's earth life compared to like a clock and life started in mm -hmm. at 10 p.m from like 12 in the morning and then humans are like in the last second before it turns midnight and like if you zoom in then it's like 0 0.00 seconds or whatever would we need to find an earth a similar planet to earth that is equally or older than us to find humans or like a developed life species we're like taking time to like react well that's a that's a, it's a very good question actually there are plenty of planetary systems that are older than us mm -hmm. so they've had more than enough time to do what happened here now what we don't know is what happens after we've been here for a while right because as you said we've uh, in the in terms of the history of the planet we've only been here just for a, a, a very short period of time because mm -hmm. There's that other thing of like, oh, if a higher form of intelligence or something is out there, like how come we haven't heard of anything? Well, you know, there's a, a famous physicist called Enrico Fermi, who is Italian, as you might surmise from his name, but he came to the United States before the Second World War. Very influential guy. And he asked essentially the question you just asked. He said, if there are all of these life forms out there and they're so intelligent, why aren't they here? Why don't we see them visiting us? And we don't have a good answer to that question. Okay. <laughs> we just don't. It's called the Fermi paradox in his honor. Fermi mm. paradox. Paradox or problem? Paradox, yeah. All right. Did you hear that? It was thunder. Is that thunder? I thought that's you like brushing your arm past the like... <laughs> the whole microphone or something that entire time i'm like is there wind or something is that thunder thunder yeah summering new england remember <sighs> the only thing i hear out here are, like cars like screeching like and i'm just like oh it's another race or something <laughs> yeah lexington it's so green over there it rains a lot which i like but it's so humid yeah yeah mm -hmm. but we'll find life we'll find evidence for it it's gonna be great mm -hmm. was that it again the thunder that was it again. Jeez, it is really going down there. So, Dad, I guess on that note... Wait, how much time has it been? I don't know if I'm wrapping it up or... 58 minutes. Wow, we've been talking kind of a lot. The time rushes by. I know. I think this, this take, third time's the charm. Hopefully, we're starting to get into our groove now. So, I guess there's two kind of smaller topics. But I already know what your answers are. So, your favorite topic... 
for you. Mine is undoubtedly black holes. Like, they're just so interesting and, like, oh, and then the other thing with, like, white holes. No one's ever seen that, right? That's correct. So, to explain a little of what white holes are, it's just, like, essentially black holes, like, suck everything in. And then um, white holes are just, like, putting whatever the heck out into the universe, right? No, you're right. That's what a white hole is, and we, we have no evidence for white holes. So, that's just, like, a, eh, that could be cool if that might be happening. But then, Dad, doesn't the white hole kind of sound like the Big Bang? It does have a lot in common with the Big Bang, but it is quite different. Because the Big Bang was everything, everything squashed together at the same time. Okay, well, it's just details, little details. But then, Dad, what if every black hole has a white hole on the other side and is another universe? Well, that's possible. And actually, serious people do talk about that, but there's no way we can find out, so... Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's my favorite topic. And then yours are, you said you didn't, you couldn't choose. It's like choosing your favorite child. I know it's me, but you can't say it. Uh So you've contained it to stuff that you've worked on, which is invisible matter. Mm -hmm. So is that similar to dark matter? What, what kind of matter do you like? I like things that we've got good reason to believe they're there but they're not bright enough they don't put up enough light that we can see with our telescopes so how do we find them how do we make indirect measurements that tell us they're there so one example is that i'm very interested in is that there are lots of small clumps of dust and ice in the outer solar system beyond neptune and pluto and they're just maybe a few miles across or maybe a little larger sometimes a little smaller and the reflected sunlight from them is just way too faint to be seen with our telescopes but if one of these passes briefly between us and a background star, that it covers the star and it blinks out for a few tenths of a second. So if we're making measurements on enough stars rapidly enough, we'll find these blink-out events and we'll be able to estimate how many of these objects are out there and where they're located. And that was your macho project. Well, the macho project was what I did in the 1990s where we were looking for, for actually objects that were rather large, like as much as a Jupiter mass or as much as a star mass, but just not putting out light. It's the same phenomenon. You look for variations that you can only explain by something passing between you and a background star. Very cool. Okay. And then your least favorite topic. I struggled with this because that's what 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 part of astronomy is, 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 is not to like. But there is something. It's when we... Sometimes a telescope that we've used for a long time, maybe for decades, it's really run that the end of it comes to the end of its useful life and we have to decommission it. Sometimes we have to take it apart. It's really sad. That is sad. Yeah. And, uh, but oftentimes it's the right thing to do. It's, a, it's an emotionally wrenching experience. Goodness. Have you had to do a couple in your time? I've had to do one. Oh, which one was it? It was a small telescope in Arizona. How long had it been there for? What was its name? I can't. I don't think it had a name actually. Oh, okay. It was not not a not a not a major player. But we're talking about the future of telescopes that are built in Hawaii right now, and some of those are going to have to go. But they can't be like donated to a high school or moved or something. Well, they're the, these are difficult to maintain, and they're massive. Oh. So, yeah, it's it's difficult. Actually, there's an example of a telescope. Actually, I've got a much better example than the Arizona one. We've got a telescope not very far from here in Massachusetts. Oh. That was the, it's a, it got a, a rather large uh, primary mirror and it was used for many decades and I basically shut it down. <gasps> Dad. I ha- have I been to that one? 
No, you haven't been to that one. So you shut down two. Yeah, it's actually this one local is, is, is more significant by quite a mar margin. And it's, there are people who would like to take it away from us, but it's, it's very expensive to move and there's asbestos in the building. So it just sits out there. Wait, why did that one have to go out of business? It was too old. It was too expensive to operate for what it could do. It was hazardous to operate. It's, uh, oh, yeah. we, you know, people want to see it work and move. And that means maintaining the electrical motors, which are old and decrepit. Yeah. So I guess we're kind of wrapping up in a sense that uh, we've been talking for a bit, which is nice. I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. So the kind of end of this question or this episode really is, uh, why should we care about space? Because here's another thing. As a younger child, I asked you, climate change, like world hunger, all those diseases, whatever. It's like space is expensive to operate, to travel and to examine. It's like, shouldn't we like focus all the money on earth to make it better? Like why do people, why should we care about space? I think it's remarkable. A lot of people care about space. A lot of people who are working in other areas altogether um, find it very interesting. Some people will watch, the, will listen to this podcast because they're interested in space. And a small number of us actually get to do work on, on, on space. And the, the political leaders of the country support us. So I think we're just extremely fortunate that a lot of people do care about space. They may not be able to tell me why, and I'm not sure I can tell you why I care about space, but it's just so interesting. How could we not want to study it? Mm -hmm. Well, I asked that question too, in a way of like, you know, the devil's advocate of like, mm -hmm. why should we care? And it's like, well, if someone's going to ask me about that, the way that, ask me, dad, ask me. Why, why do you I care about care. space? Great question, dad. So <laughs> I mentioned the kind of philosophical aspect of things, you know, like human nature, but like the whole thing of where do we come from? And it's essentially like, oh, we came from outer space. Like the things you were saying, like, oh, we have calcium. We have like iron in our bones and like, blood and all that stuff it's like all that came from the universe so i like it in the sense that it's like you as a human are like so tiny and almost insignificant compared to like the universe and everything it's like for me that takes a lot of pressure off of me because i'm like oh like i could do what i want in retrospect but like i don't know it's so grand i like that a lot well i think you gave a better answer than i did no, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, we are the product of processes that went on inside stars. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. When the universe was young, there was no there was no calcium at all in the universe when it was young. There was no no carbon, no iron. All the chemical elements that make up life today had to be made. They were made in stars. Uh, wait, so that's how things are made? Are in stars? Most almost all of the chemical elements were made in stars. The calcium and the iron, the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen. Wait, so the Big Bang didn't like spit out like, here's calcium, here's iron. Nope. That's, it's like, there's some star stuff that can form together and then the stars made it. Now, the Big Bang made hydrogen and helium and a tiny little bit of lithium. Mm, that's it? And that's it. Oh, huh. wait, so did the, did our sun make us? No. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah, I think we're wrapping up and that's so um yeah. Thanks for listening. We should have an outro, no? We should indeed. Like a catchphrase. 
Maybe we're not going to make it up right now. Ew. Nothing comes to <laughs> mind. So what do we do? Do we just say bye? I think we just go quietly into the sunset. The, or into the, the dark void of space. Oh yes, indeed. Well. Doo-doo-doo-doo. Bye.